experts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Well, thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, here at the XML Financial Group. So glad you could join me today. Today, we're doing the second part of my annual outlook. On the last show, we covered the big picture. So today, we're going to be talking about my favorite stocks for the coming year. For those of you who have listened over the years, you know that I'm a fundamentals first kind of investor. Yes, I pay close attention to the macro, to the to the big picture, as they say. But for me, that's really more of an overlay. I'm a value investor. And I know there's a lot of confusion over what that really means. If you ask someone if they want to be value or growth, chances are most people in the room are going to raise their hand and say growth. But I really think it's a misnomer. Both value and growth investors well, we're trying to make you money. We just go about it in different ways. You know, the growth investors are more concerned with momentum and what's working now. And they'll put more emphasis on things like charts and technical movements, where value investors, we're more focused on the fun- fundamentals. Like, is the business profitable? Does it have good end markets? Is it run in the interest of the shareholders? Basically, we ask ourselves two questions. Is it a good business? And what price do we want to pay for it? And I know there's a lot of branches on the value tree. You have deep value, you have growth at a reasonable price, and so on and so on. Value means a lot of different things to different people. I'm looking for good businesses trading at a discount to what I think they're worth. So the first place I'll start today is with the financials. Why? Well, they've been a staple in value portfolios because they've historically had pretty decent growth rates. They've usually traded at lower PE ratios, and they've paid higher dividends than the market average. And then they've had some volatility to them. They go up, they go down. You can buy them when they're down, and you trim them a little bit when they go up. The market is expecting three to four interest rate increases this year and more in 2023. I think that bodes well for this group, if the yield curve steepens, that is. The first one I want to talk about isn't a traditional bank, but it's Berkshire Hathaway. I know, I always talk about Berkshire Hathaway. It goes by the symbol BRKB, and that's because I own and buy the B shares. So once again, BRKB. As many of you know, this is Warren Buffett's company. He started it back in 1965, and it's been one of my largest holdings for, I don't know, nearly two decades. I always say the reason's pretty obvious. It's because of his track record. His track record puts him on the top of the list as the most successful investor ever, according to the last annual report, which... I really think is a must read for every investor. The growth in Berkshire's market value compared to the returns of the S&P 500, and that's with dividends. So Berkshire's market value 
compared to the returns of the S&P 500 since 1965? Well, it's just been simply astounding. Berkshire's compounded annual gain from 1965 through 2020, that's the last annual report. So from 1965 to 2020, Berkshire's averaged 20% per year. Now, compare that to the S&P 500, if you just were an index fund holder. Berkshire gained 20% per year versus the S&P with dividends of 10.2%. That's a huge difference. That adds up to a substantial amount of money over the 50 plus years that we're talking about here. Double. That adds up to, if you look at Berkshire since 1965, you're up 2.8 million percent. I'm not kidding. Look at the annual report. 2.8 million percent versus less than 24,000 for the S&P 500. That's a huge difference. Now, realistically, I'm not expecting Berkshire to continue along that path, that growth path. I think they're going to have a more difficult time compounding simply because of the law of large numbers. But even so, so I think it's still a very worthy core holding in in almost any portfolio. I'd be surprised if Berkshire actually averaged more than 10% per year going forward. But I'd also be surprised if it grew at less than 7% per year on average. I think it does well this year. Most of you know the basics about Berkshire. Again, BRKB. But let me give you a brief overview. Essentially, there are three parts to Berkshire. The first part is the insurance operations. You have Geico car insurance, and you also have two other divisions, the the primary group and the reinsurance group. And I just love the insurance business. Think about this. You pay your money to Geico. You drive around, and you're desperately trying not to have an accident. And if you're successful, guess what? They keep your money. Now, heaven forbid, knock on wood, If you have an accident five years from now, they pay your claim. But they also had free use of your money for five years, which they used to invest. That's what they call the float. The key to all this is the insurance business provides a tremendous amount of money that Warren Buffett can use to invest in other things that make shareholders money. The second part of Berkshire. Well, is a collection of all these operating businesses. They own Burlington Northern Railway, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, which is huge, Dairy Queen, Benjamin Moore Paints, Fruit of a Loom, Seas Candies, a whole bunch of others. They own outright. All told, I think there's probably more than 80 of them now. These businesses, in most years, produce excess capital, which they send along to Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska, and it's Warren Buffett's job to reinvest that money in other businesses or securities that generate excess excess cash, and so on and so on and so on. You're starting to get the picture here. The third piece of Berkshire is their investment portfolio. This is the part that gets a lot of attention. You turn on the financial news network, and they're saying, well, Warren Buffett's buying this and buying that. Berkshire's portfolio consists mostly of publicly traded 
securities. Things like Apple, Coke, American Express, Johnson & Johnson. Again, just a high collection or a collection of high quality businesses. They have more than a billion shares of Bank America. Think about that, a billion shares. They have 887 million shares of Apple. Apple's done really well over the years. I've always thought of Berkshire as the one stock, meaning if I were allowed to only own one stock, well, it's going to be Berkshire Hathaway. Think about it. By buying the stock, you get arguably the best money manager of all time, and you get a base of great businesses that are both publicly traded and privately held. Now, with every investment, there is a time to buy it and a time not to buy it. Now, I think it's a good time to buy Berkshire. According to some different services, Berkshire trades at about 27 times earnings. Well, I'm going to tell you, don't pay too much attention to that. Don't pay too much attention to PE multiples because in this case, I think that book value is much more important than the PE ratio. Why? Well, because the PE ratio doesn't consider the value of the portfolio holdings, things like Apple and Bank America. It only accounts for the wholly owned operating businesses. In this case, and with most financials, book value, I think, is just a much better indicator of value. Right now, the book, shout, uh, book value for the B shares is guesstimated to be around $215 for 2021. So if I'm right, you're buying it at about 1.5 times book value, which is on the high end of its 10-year average. So it doesn't look cheap. Usually 1.3, 1.4 times is where I want to buy it. But at one and a half times... If I don't own any right now, well, then I'd be willing to buy a half a position and add to it on pullbacks. I know this might sound strange to some of you hearing me say buy Berkshire at one and a half times book value, but there are a couple of things here. First, I think that over the years, because of accounting rules, Berkshire's book value gets more understated every year. Second, if I'm right, and we see a good deal of volatility this year, refer to last podcast on the big picture, if we do see a good deal of volatility this year, Berkshire is the defensive kind of company that I want to have as a staple in my portfolio. And lastly, they have about $150 billion in cash. And they can put that to work when the markets go down or if they go into a panic. So to sum it up, I think it really is a must have for just about everyone. But again, you need to do your own research and see if it's right for you and your portfolio. You just don't buy it because I'm talking about it. No, got to do your own work here. Staying with the financials, Goldman Sachs would be on my list. The banks have had a really good run here lately. For that matter, they had a really good year. During last year's outlook, I talked about USB, US Bank Corps, which I think is the best bank in America. But with the recent run, I think it's appropriate value here. 
it's about right. Now, if it pulls back under 60, I'd look at it again. And we might get a chance after uh, they announce earnings this week. We'll see. That's symbol USB. Now, with Goldman Sachs, symbol GS, I think it's one that can be bought now. This week, they announced earnings and the market didn't like it. What happens when the market doesn't like your earnings report? Well, they sell you off. When that happens, we're sometimes given opportunities. Not always, but I think it is the case here. I think the market was a bit shocked to uh, see Goldman miss because they were coming off a phenomenal year. This is actually the first time in the last seven quarters that Goldman Sachs has missed their earnings expectation. And it was because trading revenue declined and they also had some decline in some of the gains in their investment portfolio. This stock has actually been trailing behind most of its rivals lately. Maybe people got wind of the shortfalls, who knows? And they've been trailing behind because they generate a bulk of its profits from the trading and investment banking. And it derives less benefit from higher interest rates compared to the more traditional banks. So the stock is down more than 15% from its early November high of around 425, 426. Where it is now around 350, I think this stock looks like a reasonable buy because it's trading for just eight and a half times this year's earnings estimate which I have at around $40, $41 a share. That's a pretty big discount when you look at their competitors like Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan. Both of those banks trade about 13 times their earnings estimates for the year. Goldman Sachs is at eight and a half, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley at 13. That's a pretty big gap. I talked about book value earlier when I was talking about Berkshire and how I think that's maybe a better way to value the financials. By my estimates, Goldman is trading at 1.2 times book value, while JP Morgan trading more like two times book value. So again, Goldman Sachs is at a substantial discount both on a PE and a book value basis. And I don't think buying Goldman Sachs, if you do it, I don't think you're going to have a smooth ride. They're rearranging their businesses around. They're looking to grow their asset management and retail businesses. There's always hiccups. I'm almost positive there'll be bumps along the way. But I think if you're patient and you're willing to own it for a long time, I think you'll be rewarded. From a portfolio management perspective, I like to have two core holdings in the financials, Berkshire, of course and another traditional bank. And you already know that mine is U.S. Bank Corps, best bank in America, in my opinion. So with those two as my foundation, I like to build off of that when I can, when the market's giving me that opportunity, which is a long way of me saying that Goldman Sachs is more of a longer-term trade rather than a core holding for me. And longer-term trade, meaning I want to own it from one to three to maybe even five years. I'm not looking to own it for a week and get out. Just not, that's not my style. So I like Goldman Sachs here around 350. Moving on, another stock I like, 
CarMax, symbol KMX. And I started buying CarMax a couple of years ago because I thought they just had a, a, a incredible business model. When you walk into a CarMax, which I did, sake of disclosure, I walked into one about a month and a half ago, needed a used car. Long story, doesn't need to be told here. But I walked into the CarMax. And when you do that, you get this transparent car buying experience. I've always hated going into car dealers because of, I'm afraid that I'm going to be spending hours there with the salesperson who's going to constantly tell me, well, I'll go back and check with my manager and off they go and they come back 20 minutes later. At CarMax, I just like the experience. I know that when I go in there, it's going to be pretty easy, pretty straightforward. No endless haggling over price. The price is the price. You have a quick trade in. Or if you want an appraisal, you're just going in for an appraisal. They'll make you an office uh, an offer on every appraisal. It's just a total different experience if you've ever been to one. And this type of model, it's worked really well for them over the years. Over the last 10 years, revenue has risen on average 11.5% per year. And their earnings for the last 10 years have averaged 16.5%. They're growing at 16.5% per year over the last 10 years. That's pretty darn good. That's good enough to where people are looking at that. And they're saying, you know, you're making a lot of money selling used cars. I'm going to try that. And there have actually been a few good companies that have tried to replicate what CarMax has done. Carvana is the one everyone thinks of. And investors had this incredible short-term love affair with with that stock. Carvana did have a first mover advantage in online sales. That's all they do is online sales. But over the last couple of years, CarMax has built out their omni-channel, as they call it. Meaning you can buy online, you can buy in the store, a mix of the two. And they've taken away, they've been able to take away a good deal of Carvana's first mover's advantage. Diving a little deeper, there are three pieces to their business. You have retail, wholesale, and then they have their financing division. What CarMax does, they go out, they buy used cars, they recondition them. And they sell them in the used car markets, mostly retail. The cars that don't meet the CarMax standard, they get sold off through the wholesale or through wholesale auctions. So the mix is about 85% of their business is retail and about 15% is wholesale auctioning. During the last quarter, CarMax just announced not too long ago, maybe in the last month. During the last quarter, CarMax, symbol KMX, made about $2,100 on each car they sold through the retail channel and about $1,100 on the cars they wholesaled. And after the earnings release, well, you guessed it, the stock sold off. And part of the reason was because of the decline in their gross margins. They made less on every dollar they sold. And that's because CarMax made the decision not to gouge their customers. As the price of used cars went up, and they did quite a bit, they held to their pricing strategy. 
we want to make $2,100 per car. And they stuck to that. And I think that is going to benefit them in the long run because when car used car prices come down, and they will, when used car prices come down, they're going to hold to that $2,100 and you're going to see their margin expand. And I think that you're going to see more deal flow, more volume go through CarMax because they've been fair. Another reason I like CarMax is because I think they have to have ample room to grow. Keep in mind, in used car sales, that market is pretty darn fragmented. There's a lot of mom and pop dealers out there, and there really is no 800-pound gorilla. Right now, they have, I think it's about 220 stores in 41 states. 220 stores is not a lot. So there's a lot of expanding they can do, especially in the Midwest. And it makes sense. They're profitable in every market that they're in. They have a replicable, scalable model. And one thing that no one really talks about is CarMax has been doing this for a long time. And over that time, they've collected a vast amount of data. The reason they can grow their earnings like they have is because they have a better operating system that's built to leverage its information advantage where they can buy and sell at profitable prices. Basically, they know more about their business and the markets than anybody else does. Now, from a valuation standpoint, uh, point, KMX is about $110 as I speak. The stock is trading at about 14 times this year's earnings estimate, which is on the low end, the very low end of its 10-year average. I like KMX here at $110. Last year, I talked about a number of industrial stocks, mostly about Westco, which is symbol WCC and Raytheon, symbol RTH, uh, RTX, excuse me. A company I started buying back in September is Gates Industrial. And I like it for the coming year, obviously. That's why I'm talking about it here. The symbol is GTES. Once again, GTES, Gates Industrial. Never heard of them? That's okay. That's why I'm here. Gates is one of the biggest makers of power transmission and fluid, fluid power components. I know, not the sexy stuff. But Gates is the leader in market share in both of these areas. What do they do? They make belts, hoses, pumps. These are the things that you would call mission critical, mission critical type stuff. And they don't cost a lot relative to the system that they're in. And their business model is largely a replacement-driven revenue stream because it comes from normal wear and tear and maintenance. Think of it like this. Here's a good way of of me explaining it. The fan belt on your car breaks. You go out and you buy a new one because, well, you need it for your car to run, and it really doesn't cost that much compared to your car, you're just going to, you're not going to argue about your fan belt. You're just going to replace it, right? Those are the types of things that Gates makes. 
And the upper hand that they have over their competitors, they have a strong dis- distribution channel along with other things like uh, they're great at this material science coming up with new formulas and hosing and they have great brand awareness. They have tremendous operational capabilities and they have a size and scale advantage. When I was doing my research, I, I saw a bunch of ways that I thought that they could grow. In other words, what I called the opportunities when I was doing my SWOT analysis. For example, machinery, there's a lot of machinery out there that uses chains. And in a lot of cases, it makes sense for those chains to be converted to a belt, like in food and beverage sites. And the reason they would do that is because it eliminates the necessity for food-grade lubricants. It's going to be cheaper for them, cheaper, cheaper overall. And I talked about fan belts in your car. People are thinking about these electronic or electric vehicles and that they may be a threat to GTES. But I don't think it is. I think it's actually an opportunity for them because right now, EVs, electric vehicles, EVs have about 30% more gates type content than a regular combustible engine. And that's because they have more hydraulic hosing needs, which yes, is partially offset by fewer belts need, but they need more hoses than belts. And that opportunity is expanding. It's expanding because electric vehicles have these complex thermal management uh, demands. And as just to give you an example, one platform I looked at, GTS, GTES had five times more content on the electric version than on the traditional enter, uh, engine version. Five times more content. That's tr- great for them. I think this stock is cheap given its growth opportunity, and I'd be a buyer under $16. Very important. I'm a buyer under $16. You have to do your own research. This one's a bit more speculative than the other ones I've talked about so far. And I just want to be disciplined about this one. Because the one thing I don't like about Gates is that Blackstone, that's the private equity group, they own about 66% of the company. That's a headwind for me. At any time, Blackstone could decide that the price is right and they're going to be selling their shares into the market. Obviously, that flood of liquidity is going to drive a stock price down or should drive the stock price down. So I want to be very disciplined here. I'm a buyer under 16. And when I do that, I'm happy. So that's Gates, symbol GTES. The last one I'll do today I'll do five, and then I'll talk about a few more, uh, a few more in the coming weeks. I think this earnings seasons may give us a chance to buy a few more. Also, I wanted to say, if I'm talking about it, you need to assume that I own it for myself and my clients. I do eat my own cooking, so yes, I own Berkshire, I own uh, U.S. Bancor, I own Carmax. You get the idea. And again, make sure you do your own research. And make sure it's right for you. If you don't manage your own money, call us or talk to your own advisor 
accountant or what have you. You get the idea here. So one last one I'll do for today is BBWI. That's BBWI. It's Bath and Body Works. A lot of people get it confused with Bed Bath and Beyond. Nope, not that one. BBWI Bath and Body Works. I talked about this one. I think it was back in August. It's around $57 now. I initially bought it much higher, but I'll be adding to it. I'm averaging down. Most of you have heard the name before, and that's not a guess on my part. According to them, more than 80% of women between the ages of 18 and 59, 80%, and actually better than 60% of men in that same age group know who they are. Most people know who they are, but If you're in the minority, don't worry. I'll fill you in. They're a leading fragrance retailer, and they operate across different – they have different product categories, obviously. They have the home fragrance, you know, like air fresheners, potpourri, candles. All that's about 40% of sales. And then you have the body care and fragrance, which is about 35% of sales. Then you have the soaps and the sanitizers that are bringing up the rear. They account for about 20% of sales. Bath and Body Works, they have somewhere between uh, 1,750 stores approximately across the country. Roughly half are in shopping malls. The other half are outside of the shopping malls. And then, you have, of course, you have the mall that comes to you, the internet, their online sales. And their revenue... It's pretty evenly split between those three, the mall-based stores, the outside the mall, and the internet, pretty evenly split. They do have about 3% of sales coming from their international segment, but it's 3%, so we're not going to talk about it. And just, to cl- and just to clarify, this company used to be called L Brands, and it traded under a different symbol. And that was until they spun off Victoria's Secrets which I think was a great move. I think Victoria's Secrets had been, has been headed in the wrong direction for a while now. So as you do your research, you want to keep this in mind. Otherwise, some of the comparisons may not make sense to you. So it used to be trade, uh, L Brands. Now it's not. One of the reasons why I like BBWI is because they have this large and growing end market. Last year's sales, were $6.4 billion between the three segments. As I mentioned early, earlier, that's only a fraction of the total market. They estimate that they only have a 3% share in the bath, body, and beauty industry. A 3% share. There's a lot of room for growth there. They have 22%, or what they estimate, 22%, of the home fragrance market and about 21% of soaps and sanitizers. So again, plenty of room to grow here. If you're trying to grow, makes sense to have a solid distribution strategy, right? They do. Remember that they have that balance between the mall stores, non-mall stores, and the digital. I think this balance lets them take part in two of the larger themes that I see going on in retail, and that's a shift to digital, obviously more shopping online and 
The second one is the move out of the malls. What I also like about them is, and what their customers like about them, is that they have a strong set of products that they just don't let sit there and become stale. They're constantly upgrading their formulas. They're redesigning their packages and their labels. Uh, they're, they're trying to keep up with changing case. Of course, with the holidays, they always release new products, which a lot of people buy as gifts. So they're constantly being innovative, I guess is a way to say it. I think they're, it's also their consistent quality and the variety of the pack, uh, products that encourage their, their daily use, which means more replenishment, more frequent purchases. You get the idea. Not only do they have a big end market, a well-known brand, but I think they're also, or I think they can grow, uh, grow by increasing their spend per customer. Have, just have more people spend money with you. And the customers you do have make them have them spend more. Last year, the average customer bought three times, spending $40 each time across seven different products. That adds up. I can even, even I can do this, Matt. That adds up to about $110 in annual spend per customer. And that number's been growing over the last five years. About half of those customers return year after year after year. I think that the spend per customer is going to be a key driver going forward. And they've, they've acknowledged that by developing a loyalty program. It's rolled out in four markets now, and they're planning to do a full nationwide launch next year. Still a new program, but the early numbers are showing that the spend per customer is about 30% more than the non-loyalty members. Makes sense for them to have it. Last year was a great year for BBWI for obvious reasons. We're all at home buying soaps and sanitizers and candles, make the house smell good. As As a result, they had some terrific margins. And that's because they didn't have to run a lot of promotions and do discounting, things of that sort. I would suspect that going forward, the margins are going to come down relative to last year as we work our way towards normal, more normal. But with 25%-ish operating margins, they're going to generate some strong free cash flow. I love cash. But when investors look at year-over-year comparisons, it may not look so great to them because last year was a great year. This one's more normal big difference. And that's the risk in the near term. But here's the reason why I'm willing to look past that. It's valuation. With my earnings estimate at about 470 per share, the stock is currently trading about 12 times earnings. What does that mean? Well, compared to the other companies that do things like they do. Cody, for example, Cody trains, trades at 32 times earnings. Estee Lauder, 41 times. L'Oreal, 43 times earnings. The rest of the companies in their group are trading at much, much higher multiples, about twice of what BBWI is. If they keep executing their strategy, 
I think that you could see investors paying a whole lot more for a dollar of their earnings. I'm a buyer here at 57. Let me say that this is also not a core holding. It's a consumer stock. It's not one that I'm going to own forever. I want to make money. I want to blow out the candle. I want to go home. So that's simple. BBWI. I'm a buyer here at 57, as I said. We're going to leave it there with these five. And as I said, I'll add on a few more in the coming weeks as we work our way through earnings season season here. Until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow. I'm Eric Whiteman, and this has been Common Sense Investing. Listen to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talk about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and are not necessarily those of the XML Financial Group. I typically own and trade the securities I'm discussing, both personally and for my clients, but not all of them. Likewise, employees of XML and our affiliate broker dealer may be trading and providing advice regarding the securities I mentioned to their clients as well. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, you should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I suggest you get someone who's qualified in those areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. I like to make projections and other forward-looking statements, which are just that, opinions and are not actual results and are only valid as of the date of this recording. Things change constantly. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.